Hi, everybody. Welcome back to In the Chill of the Night. I am George Belsky. With me is Ray Gadetti, and our guest tonight, uh, retired ATF Assistant Director Ken Croak, uh, who just wrote a great book called Riding with Evil about his undercover work uh, infiltrating the pagans in uh, Long Island, New York. Uh, great, great book. I highly advise you to get it. Ken uh, also was my boss when I was the special agent in charge in Newark. He was my uh, deputy assistant director uh, over field operations in the eastern region. Um, so, Ken, great to see you again. Congrats on, on the book and your retirement. Uh, great to see you guys. And thanks, George. Uh, really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it was a fun-filled career, uh, but it's also fun when you get out on the other side, as you know. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It's uh, what, do, what do you have in your work week is uh, like six Saturdays and a Sunday now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, but, but close. Yeah. Hey, Ken, I, I have an admission. Um, when I reached out for you to ask if you would come on the show, thanks to uh, Pete Gagliardi recommending you, um, I told you I was going to buy your book and I told you I was going to read it to cover to cover prior to you coming on. But there was a little bit of an accident with that. You see, I, I also bought Lou Veloz's book, and uh, I wanted to get that autographed. So I sent that to George to get it autographed. But in doing so, I also sent your book that I was supposed to read to George. So <laughs> that means George read the book, and I did not. But I promise you, I will be reading it. Uh, and then I'm going to want your autograph as well. So that's that's my admission. But hey, look, I met you, uh, gosh, probably about six, seven years ago when I was uh, working with the SP yeah. and uh, on the National Crime Gun Governance Board. And I remember you and I both hit it off because of uh, South Jersey, a place that is near and dear to my heart but plays a huge part in your pagan story. So I was always interested to hearing your side of the story of the Jersey Shore compared to my side of the Jersey Shore. So I'm looking forward to discussing that. Yeah, there's definitely uh, some differences in the Jersey Shore. For somebody who is not familiar with the Jersey Shore, I sure as heck became familiar. Actually, Jersey as a whole, I became a lot more familiar with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, where does it all start for you? with uh, going undercover with uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's crazy. You know, I, I had done some other um, undercover work with um, some OMGs out in California some years back, early in my career. And, and I had been doing undercover my entire career. And um, so, you know, this opportunity kind of fell fell my way and it was never intended to be, I was never going to be the long-term undercover. Matter of fact, there was never really an intention to have a long-term undercover, but, um, somebody came in the office, uh, one day into a different group, not my group. And, um, had said they had some information on a, a support club up in um, in New England, and that this club was talking about uh, patching over to the pagans, and um, so he, he gave a lot of information, and it, it almost seemed to be too good to be true, to be honest with you, when they came in, and the agents, uh, a couple of agents in that group. Um, he come by my office to ask me about because they knew I had had a lot of experience with um, outlaw motorcycle gangs. Um, they ran by what they were hearing. And it seemed legit. And it was like, all right, well, you know, let's just put this guy in the box, man. Let's just give him the polygraph, see if he passes. Uh, if he doesn't, we'll, we'll, then we'll go from there. And, and um, he did pass. He passed with flying colors. And um, 
And so then I was like, all right, well, let's, you know, I could go up, I could meet with some of these folks, see what they're about, see what this group is and um, see if it was going to be worth the investigative efforts, see what they were into and so forth. Um, but part of it is I had, to, you know, we had to come up with a kind of a backstory as to who I was and, um, and he was married and I needed to meet his wife because if I knew him and my backstory is going to be that I've known him for some years, you know, his wife's going to have to stand up to that story as well. Um, and so I went out and, um, and met with her as well. And, um, and she was actually sharper than he was. And, um, so that part I was comfortable with. And then we had a chance meeting, um, with one of the, um, devil's disciples, um, up in the area and it just ran into him. We were helping him fix a hot water heater and, and one thing led to another and I got invited to a party and, Went to a party, met a whole bunch more of the devil's disciples. And um, from there, there was, you know, immediate conversation because they were going to be opening a, a pagan chapter up in Massachusetts. And um, they were looking to patch over and start a chapter. And so conversation didn't happen right away. Obviously, it went on for a period of time. Um, but again, I was there just to kind of test it out and see if it was worth doing. And the intent was to, to bring in, you know, a uh, long term undercover if it warranted and if we thought it was, if it was worth the effort, if, if these guys were going to be into some, you know, violations that ATF would be um, interested in investigating. Now, Ken, you, you were uh, a group supervisor when you were going out to do this. So you were like a working group soup. How long had you been uh, the supervisor of the group? Oh gosh, by that point, I had been the supervisor probably nine years. Uh, I've been at Group Soup for a long time. Um, and matter of fact, yeah. if, if I didn't have one of the world's worst ASACs, I'd, I'd still be a group supervisor. Um, <laughs> so I uh, I was I was very happy being a group soup. Um, I was a, a group supervisor who you know worked investigations, get out there um, with the troops. You know, I re- enjoyed it. I did you know still did a lot of undercover as a, as a group supervisor, and um, was always willing to help out in that way. So it was a bit unusual and. And ATF came up with a rule um, not too long, coincidentally, right after I came out, um, that um, supervisors could no longer do uh, long-term undercover. Yeah. Throughout my career, I've come across guys where uh, you know that as soon as they've done something, good or bad sometimes, um, you know, there's a name that gets attached to the new general order, right? So the croak rule in in (laughs) ATF is that if 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 you're a group super or rack, no working undercover for you anymore. So uh, that's excellent. So, um, so, but you had, you must have had a pretty good sized group, and then and then somebody else you could lean on. How were those discussions with um, in the book? You mentioned your sack was Andy Anderson, and and Andy was my uh, deputy assistant director when I was a uh, uh, an ASAC, uh, an acting sack up there as well up in Newark. So, uh, and I know he's just a gentleman. How did did any of your discussions before you went under to take this further, did it focus on, you know, hey, what's going to happen to the group or did you have somebody in mind or because I know that's a lot on your plate being a being a group supervisor, especially in a place like Boston. You're busy, not just doing your own case agent stuff, but handling all the work your guys do. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a great point. And, and listen, I was fortunate that Andy was the sack up there because Andy was great, very supportive. But, you know, again, it, this wasn't when we came out of the gate, it was not going to be a long term undercover. And, I, and if it was, I wasn't going to be it. Um, but to test the waters, Andy was very supportive of it. Um, 
he, you know, he was like, Hey, you know, can you do both, you know, or, or we can get somebody to act. And I said, no, I, I could do both. Um, you know, this is just going to be, you know, a couple times a week meeting with some folks and, and, you know, maybe setting up an apartment, but you know, we can work around that. And he's like, well, you sure if that changes, you know, let me know. And, and I will say it at some point as this progressed on, um, it became less of an option, you know, because I was like, yeah, I could do both, you know, for a while. Right. And he was like, no, you need to focus on what you're doing right now. And we're going to, we'll have an actor. And, and there was an agent in my group, Sheila, who, uh, she was fantastic. And, and, um, you know, had all the respect of the group members. And, um, so she stepped in and what she thought would probably be like a month acting assignment and turned out to be almost two years. Wow. So how, how does something start off with, uh, particularly federally that you think you're only going to be doing this for a short while? Isn't your game plan to, to go long-term? You know, the game, there really wasn't a plan to go long-term, but there wasn't a plan not to either. But the, the, the one thing that was not supposed to happen is it wasn't supposed to be me. But what happened <laughs> is, you know, once we got, you know, once we started meeting different people and, um, you know, I, I started bonding with different ones, that, who the two individuals who we thought were going to become the presence of the this new chapter, um, I got tight with both of them, Um individually um because i didn't know you know it's like going to a horse race you don't know which horse to back both were saying they were going to be the president of this new chapter i didn't know which one was going to come out on top so i kind of befriended both and then one thing leads to another and you meet other people and the next thing before you know it, it we've gotten so far down the road that if we were going if we were going to continue to go down into a long-term undercover operation there wasn't much of a choice it was going to have to be me um and so you know that decision still was like all right you know, is this, is this going to be worth it? And then we started, you know, um, you know, hearing more and more about the pagans and the new chapter. And part of this was like, you know, you, a pagan chapter being open Massachusetts, it's a large hell's, uh, angels, uh, area that's going to create a lot of uh, problems up in Massachusetts, a lot of <laughs> violence. So like we could get out in front of this. And so, um, that was one of the motivators, but going back to George's point, you know, Andy was super supportive of that. And Andy was like, hey, you know, we, we've got to do what we got to do. We gotta, this is a rare opportunity and we got to take advantage of it. Ken, so um, how long was this running, um, you know, this, this uh, you know, gather the intel, see if this is worth it uh, phase. How long was that uh, before you knew, okay, I'm really going to have to go in uh, and do this long term. So I would say it was about two months, maybe, maybe two and a half, where it was just hanging with the folks up in Mass, the Devil's Disciples, um, and again there was two individuals who were claiming to be the the president, you know, to be. Now, are oh, they the, are they related to the pagans or? So they're a support club, and they were going to patch over. Five of them were going to start a pagan's chapter up in Massachusetts. Wow. So, so it, but to, to, to finish, George, your question was, it was um, like, okay, so at what point you're going back and forth and you're kind of trying to figure out who's going to be the leader in this thing. And then what are they really going to be into? And then of course you have Intel from, you know, from ATF that are like, Hey, the pagans never been infiltrated. They're extremely violent, the violent, you know, the, the most violent of the, of the big five clubs. So, what um, you know, we don't want to pass up this opportunity. And I think that was the Sachs, you know, position on this. Uh, even later on, when people were like, "Hey, it's time to shut this down," he's like, "No, this is this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We we can't pass it up." And 
and the further I got into it, the less likely it was going to be that I, I was going to be able to leave and, and get somebody else in there. And so, you know, I couldn't tell you the exact day, but I remember coming home and, and tell my wife, like, Hey, um, it's, it's not likely I'm going to be able to, to back out of this, you know, short of, you know, shutting down the investigation. Yeah. Now, before you had done, um, this, uh, I know, uh, you had done undercover in the past. Had you ever done any, uh, deep, um, long terms like this on an infiltration, uh, out in California? So I did some longer term, longer term, not long term like this um, out there. You know, there was there was a, a mafia investigation that I had done out there and I had done I'd done some undercover work with the Vagos and, and some others out there, uh, but never at the length of, of what this was. Um, and it's, yeah, so now this this was uh, this was in a league of its own. Yeah. And, and, and for the folks at, at home. Um, when we talk undercover, there, there's undercover and then there's undercover. And, and a lot of a lot of ATF, right, what we call the POA, the plain old agents, you know, could go out and buy guns. They could go out and buy dope. And, you know, it was one or two and then you make an arrest. And then there's this where, I mean, you're completely submerged um, and living the life. And and it really is. A, it's a it's a whole other ball game and I've never done super long-term stuff, but you know, I supervise guys on storefronts. And so uh, I know how nerve wracking that was for me as a boss. Um, I, I can't imagine. And Ken, you do a great job talking about it in the book, the, the stress and strain on, on you, um, as you're doing this, um, how much, I, I know you're, you're always a big guy played hockey, so you're stout, but um, I know you saying, said you gained some weight during this case. Uh, how much? How much weight did you gain? Well, it's funny. I gained weight and lost weight, depending on what phase yeah. of the investigation. Oh, the cheapers, yeah, yeah. You know, going through prospecting, I, I probably dropped, I don't know, thirty-five pounds to hang around the prospecting phase, and then I gained that back, and then some um, during can you, the. Can, the you, late- can you explain that? Like, what is the that prospect hang around phase. Yeah. So hang around is actually not a bad phase, man. If, you, if you're ever going to you know, go hang around some bikers, that's not a bad one. You get to go to all the parties. You have no responsibility. Um, you're not involved and not allowed to be involved in any of the criminal activity. So it's actually not a bad life. Why, uh, why do they want hang arounds? Then? Is it as a recruiting mechanism? A little bit of recruitment, but they're sizing you up. Like I, I will tell you this, there's, Listen, there's, there's, you know, fuck around, you know, um, pagans and then there's serious pagans. And and that goes for every club out there. And they're going to, you know, the ones that are serious about it, like my sponsor was extremely serious about it. this guy. He drank very little, did not do any drugs, paid attention to everything that was going on. There's, there's photos that I look at now and I see him in the back and he's just watching everybody. He's not doing a lot of what the other folks are doing. So. Wow. The hangaround phase is, is it's, it's, you know, it's like the honeymoon, right? And then prospecting goes straight to hell. And, um, and that's where you are, you know, a servant to the club and the pagans do it a little bit different than some of the other clubs. Whereas you're a prospect to the entire pagan nation, meaning I'm not just a prospect to my chapter. It's to everybody. 
Um, and so, and there's this, unbel- you, have to, you know, you have to fill out an application to start with. Then they do this full background and then there's, they'll run polys when they decide they're going to run polys. So you never know if that's going to happen or not. And then you go through the servitude piece where you go days without sleeping, days without eating. There's regular rituals, they call it the witching hours at mandatories, where they hunt prospects and they just beat the shit out of them with axe handles, which if, if folks don't know, like, I'm not talking about like your little hatchet handle. I'm talking mm-hmm. a full on, it is a baseball bat. There's no difference. Um, and they, they beat prospects. I mean, there was some horrible beatings. You know, I ended up catching some myself there. You know, it is not fun. And you talk about stress and it's, it's stress of being found out, but it's also being stressed of having your head caved in. It's, you know, they, right before I became a prospect, they killed the prospect before me. Uh, or, well, I should say the, the prospect before me was killed. Um, you know, it's, it's still an open investigation. Um, but, you know, that almost shut the whole thing down. ATF's like, what are we going to send you in? You know, look what happened to the last guy. He got st- stabbed through the eye into the brainstem and he's dead. So we're going to put you in there to see what happens next. You know, so there was a lot of resistance to that. So wow. you always have that stuff kind of hanging over your head. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So let me ask you this, um, because this, you know, now you've been on the inside. When you started climbing up the ranks in ATF, um, if you had a guy or, or did you have any more folks that did uh, – infiltrations like this and what perspective did that give you as a boss for the agent that's under you know um you know about when to pull it when it when does it not become worth it for um the agent and for the agency yeah no i i um you know, one of the reasons I went out, but it starts with because I had an idiot for an ASAC and, and my wife got tired of listening to me. And she's like, all right, the other ASAC job's open. You want to shut them up? Go become the other ASAC. So I, that was that was my motivation for being an ASAC. But once I did that, I was like, well, shit, I might as well just keep going. Um, but part of it, though, George, was exactly that. It's like, OK, I mean, you know, there's there's operators who go up into management, not enough of them. And then there's others that go up into management who have no idea what it's like to actually do it in the field. And so I was like, all right, you know, I, I'll bring that perspective up and hopefully make it easier for others. And and I tried to do that as I, as I went up the food chain. And um, so uh, you're right. I think I had a very unique perspective having done it um, where I would have, you know, when I was in ASAC in Boston, I'm, you know, people would ask me, Hey, you know um, you know, cause I was the last long-term undercover to come out. And so they're like, Hey, uh, you know, would you support it? I'm like, yeah, for the right case. You know, if you've got a, a biker gang of three and you want to go infiltrate him and, and these guys are doing nothing but, you know, selling stolen motorcycle parts, then no, I'm not going to support it. But if you want to do a legitimate, you know, infiltration into a group, and it doesn't have to be biker gangs, it could be any gang, it could be any organization. I would support it if the targets were good. And, and I did. And we had some in Denver. They, you know, listen, it, it, nine out of 10 of these, and you guys know this, nine out of 10 of these things start out with a plan and, it, and it, they don't materialize right. because the undercover's not right. accepted, whatever. There's all way more fail than succeed. Um, and so there was a few that I supported, you know, when I was a sack out in Denver. Um, and, and some of them went for a little bit and, and it wasn't because we pulled the plug. It was because for different reasons, we, you know, we had to stop the investigations, but they were all investigative reasons. So I did try to make it better. I tried to make it easier for those, um, you know, behind me, you know, who wanted to do this. And, and I participated in a group and, and George, you can relate to this. 
you know, they finally got tired of like a lot of these cases ended up with the undercover and the case agent versus management. Right. And so when I came out, they put together a group and they brought a group of us together to look at this and be like, why? And, and, and I had a unique hat, right? I was an undercover and a supervisor, which was pretty rare. And so they sat this group around and we talked about it for one day. And next thing you know, something happened and they turned the group's focus onto something else and they never got back to it again, um, which always bothered me because I really do think there's ways, there were pr- some pretty simple ways they could have avoided a lot of the aggravation that happens with most of these cases. Yeah. Hmm. It's, um, I think you're right. It's, 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 it's not just, you know, can we get the, can we get the case worked successfully, which means, um, the undercover and the case agent come out. Okay. We get, uh, the evidence we need to make a successful prosecution, but then on the back end, can we do an in-depth after action that, that, the next time we do an undercover case, even if it's not a deep penetration like this, how do we make make the wheel a little bit rounder for um, both the case agent, the undercover, the organization, and and our customers at the U.S. Attorney's Office? So, yeah, I could see where that would be uh, beneficial. I wish yeah. we would have done that. Hey, listen. Rule number one for me should be is that you had to have worked these investigations before and that you um, have to have experience in running these investigations before you can supervise those. And so I'll give you a perfect example. You know, when they were doing the Mongols cases out in, in L.A., you had, you know, Eric Harden was the group supervisor for one of them. And he was a sack for another one or an ASAC for another one. You know, there's a guy who understood it. There's a guy who supported these and know what it was like. But he also knew when to call bullshit, too, and be like, "Uh, uh-uh, this doesn't make sense. You know, let, let's think of another way or let's not do it that way. So, you know, the guys respected him. And then when you have others who are supervising these cases who have never done it, who quite honestly have no business. I, yeah, I could argue they shouldn't be an agent, but it sure as hell shouldn't be a supervisor. And um, they're the ones shot calling these things. That's where you get into problems and, and, and you, make, you know, it could compromise the investigation, but more importantly, you get somebody hurt. Yeah, exactly mm. right. So let's uh, talk about the Jersey Shore, unless you <laughs> want to tell us about the St. Patty's Day in New York. <clears throat> Sounds like uh, these short towns have really uh, created some memories for you. Yeah, all of New Jersey. I, I got a whole new appreciation for the state of New Jersey in my, uh, my time in this investigation. Uh, and, and, and we should set it up that uh, over the over the course of the last, uh, I guess, decade, or maybe more so, uh, in September was it September or October? The it was a, a, a biker fest down in the Wildwood area, and that's a place that you found yourself frequenting during that time of the year. Yeah, no, there's, and it's been going on. Yeah. It's I'd say 15 or more years um, that Wildwood uh, roar to the shore. Yep. And that is a pagan event. Um, And, you know, each of the clubs have their events and, and, you know, you like, you know, you hope that they all stay to their own events, but um, yeah, this this is just chaos and pandemonium. I mean, it, it, um, you know, I, I did two roars to the shore, one as a prospect um, and then one as um, an actual member. Um, well, it was, it was I became a prospect. There. So I got thrown out of the club and then got brought back in the club. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know which one was worse, to be honest. With you. you know, it's like that thing, you know, like, I don't know, even like as an agent. Right. You, you go to the academy you're like oh, this sucks. But when I get out, I'm going to be an agent. This is going to be so cool. I can do whatever I want. 
then all of a sudden you're an agent. You got a supervisor who's barking at you. This and you're like, oh, well, I'm a supervisor. It's going to be so much better. Well, it never gets better. And the same thing happened with the pagans. It was like, oh, when I'm done prospecting, when I get that patch, it's going to be so much easier. It wasn't. Even when I became an officer in the club, it's just everybody's got a boss, right? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you gave even a little heads up. Uh, you know, the Jersey Shore in the summer is just a beautiful place. And it's packed with uh, all sorts of families. And I remember when you and I were talking that, you know, the same places that were set up for families were the same places that were utilized to, to house these uh, outlaw motorcycle yeah. motorcyclists. And your your vantage point was so different than what I would see of of the Jersey Shore. Well, it's, it's funny because talking to folks like you, like, you know, go there for vacation and, and, and I'll, it, it, it's just hard for me to get past. I, like I could see it, right? The boardwalk, I could see it being beautiful, but it wasn't beautiful when I was there. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, in those mandatories were the worst, it, it, you know, as a prospect for, for sure, but even as a member, um, because it just utter chaos and in each day a mandatory went on, the more dangerous it got. Cause you know, most of the folks are strung out on drugs most of the time and they get more and more unpredictable when they're not sleeping. But being down there, it was, um, it was crazy because you're in this like coastal community, but it's just full of bikers and you don't know who's who. So you have, obviously, you know, the pagans and there's all their support clubs and right. there's always conflict going on. And I'll never forget one of the nights we were at, one of the motels down there and in a president of one support clubs, a disrespect of one of the pagan presidents. And we were over there and, and when we were there talking to that president, he disrespected one of the two presidents I was with. And I was a Sergeant Arnold at the time. They walked away and they said, listen, we're going to call him out here on the, we were up by the, like one of the rooms led out to like a roof deck. And he's like, um, we're going to gut him and we're going to throw him between these two buildings. It was like a gap of like three feet. Like <laughs> it would have been a long time before anybody ever found him. It'd probably be the smell that would have brought him in. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, I'm surrounded by 500 of these support club members. I've got a gun with six rounds in it, so that's not going to work out real well for me. And it's like, all right, well, how I can't let this happen. You know, I've got to stop it. So, like, now what? And I see, you know, some blue lights flashing, like, way, way in the distance. I'm like, how do I get their attention? And I'm like, that's not going to work. So what I did is I used their own rules against them. You know, I was like, hey, you know, you, you guys are talking about, and this is two presidents. I'm like, you guys are talking about, taking this guy out you guys know we got to get mother's club mother club's green light before you can take out our president and one of support clubs and uh one of them you know was like hey fuck that we're doing it anyways and the other one was like no nah, nah, he's right let's just go over blah 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 anyways we go back over to where mother club was staying one thing leads to another everyone forgets about it and, and it never happens but you know that's the kind of thing like it, you know every damn day there was always some sort of event that had you in the cusp of something that you had to either stop or we're gonna have to come out a roll for how did this chaos uh, breed loyalty? I would think that people would be, you know, all sorts of uh, conflict would occur that would people would be turning on each other. Yeah, it, that's a great question. And, and, and I'll tell you what, the, the roar to the shore was unique because you had a lot of public interface. And I'll go back to that in a second. The Ohio mandatory, which I found to be the worst of all of them. Um, was you were in this open field with a thousand pagans and support club members. And that's where a lot of that internal conflict, and I'll, and I'll share one story. Um, you know, I was a Sergeant Arms at the time and um, it, it, I finally got to sleep at like 6.30 and all of a sudden freaking somebody wrapping on my tent at like seven. And there was a lot of chaos the night before, a lot of battles, you know, going back and forth. And 
I opened the zipper to my tent and I look and there's two mother club members and a pop, a president of presidents. And they're like, Hey, slam, come on out here, bring your ax handle. So I come out and they're like, listen, we've got a meeting coming up. Um, and it, you know, there's going to be two pagans in the middle of this, this meeting. If we nod at one of them, you're to beat the fuck out of them with your ax handle. I'm like, okay. Um, unbeknownst to me now, which I'm not gonna be able to do this. Right. Unbeknownst to me, there's two other mother club, mem- I mean, uh, Sergeant Arms who get the same, you know, uh, command. So we go over here and what had happened is the night before one pagan had accused another pagan of being a rat and they got into a bit of an altercation. It was broken up or whatever. And mother club just snapped. So they called all the Jersey, Pennsylvania and, and New York pagans together. And they're like, and so there's this big half circle. And then you have the mother club members at the front of the circle. And then you have me and two other sergeant arms in the middle of the circle with the two clowns that were battling back and forth. And so we're sitting there and they're, they're going back and forth. They're asking questions. Tempers are starting to get heated up. And also Doc, who's one of the sergeant arms, you know, standing there with me. All of a sudden, it's like friggin' Babe Ruth stepped up and he friggin' unleashes with his axe handle on this guy um, named Fenderbender. He starts well away, smacks him in the head, dudes down. All of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, they gave the signal. Now I missed the signal. So now I'm gonna get my ass handed to me. I can't participate in this. So all of a sudden, one of the mother club members yells, goes, what the hell? Oh, in, in the meantime, the other sergeant arms jumps in and he's wailing away with his axe handle. So the mother club stops it and they're like, what the hell are you doing? And he, and he's like, he's like, I got the signal. And they're like, from who? He goes, <laughs> from him. And, and he's motioning over at the president of president. So the president of president is, is a step right below mother club. And uh, president president's like, I didn't give any fucking signal. What are you talking about? So the, the mother club member takes the Sergeant arms, the first one's ax handle, starts wailing away on him. And I, I have this all on recording. And, and meanwhile, I'm like, holy shit, I'm surrounded by 250 pagans. I didn't, I missed the signal. So now I'm next. Then all of a sudden now they're wailing away on this guy. Now I'm like, shit. And then they start wailing on the two of them. The other mother club member grabs an ax handle, starts wailing away on him. Um, eventually that gets broken up. Long story short is it was no signal. And so then the, the national sergeant arms stops. He's like, this is enough of this. You know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you know what? See this guy here slam. He's an individual thinker. This guy knows how to follow directions. This is what you want to aspire to be. I'm like, holy shit. I just went from having my head caved in to being the hero of all the pagans. So like, that's the shit you just couldn't, you couldn't predict how this stuff was going to work out. Wow. And, and your cover team is how far away? Oh, in, in that case, miles. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even if they were a half mile away, they, I didn't have a transmitter because yeah. we would get RF wanded, yeah. stripped down naked. Like there's no way. I mean, there was, when we moved the dead bodies, the only time I ever had a transmitter on that didn't work out so well that day either. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, um, just didn't have it. So, the, you know, we, we always joked and, you know, when they were briefing is like they called themselves the body recovery team yeah. um, because they never <laughs> knew where the hell I was or what the hell was going on. And, yeah. and that was no no sh- shot on them. Those guys were out there for a ton of hours. They never complained. Well, some complained, but most, most didn't. And um, they were super supportive of the whole thing. So I take my hat off to, to that crew. And, you know, you guys will see it in the book, the ones yeah. that I really had a lot of respect for, but, um, but the fact is, is, and I know it was frustrating for them. And, and George, you touched on it. It's like, sometimes I think for the cover team or the supervisor, if it's, if it's a genuine supervisor, um, it's more stressful to them. At least I knew what I was doing, where I was. They, they, they half the time, you know, um, they didn't know where I was or what was going on. Yeah. I, I wow. was never a big UC guy, uh, but I'm telling you, listening to a wire or, you know, then the wire goes dead 
And what did he say? Did he call help? Did he what? You know, and it, and uh, it, it was bad enough as as an agent, right? Because it's my friends who were in there, you know, doing the deal, and and I'm you know keyed up, making sure that I'm ready to do everything I'm supposed to do. And then as a boss, for me it was even worse because you know did I do anything that's going to get somebody hurt? And you know, you know, where do we? How do we? How do you let them run with it? but keep it within the parameters. So, you know, the cover team is, is showing up and the only thing they're doing is getting revenge. Right. And that was, that was the, always the, the joke is uh, undercover and say, Hey man, just coming and get revenge for me. Um, but uh, yeah, it's super stressful and, and, and it's a lot of time, but, um, but then, uh, and you talk about this in a book, quite a good deal. How does that stress then translate itself to uh, your wife and family, because she's also an agent. Yeah, no, and, and people always ask, you know, they, they're like, oh, so great, you know, your wife being an agent. I'm like, well, it was great because she understood what was going on, but it was terrible because she understood what was going exactly. on. Exactly. You know, like it, 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 it's not perfect either way. And, 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 you know, of course she's an agent and then we have, you know, three young kids at the time. And, and, and uh, so it was a lot of stress on her, a lot of stress. And and she kept a lot of things from me. So, cause she's like, Hey, you had enough on your plate, just trying to keep yourself alive. Never mind adding the stress of having three kids or herself or, or whatever was going on. So yeah, you know, people are always like, Oh, you know, um, you know, uh, distance makes a heart grow fonder and all that stuff. Well, I can tell anybody if you're looking for marriage therapy, do not go undercover for two years because it's not <laughs> help that much. Yeah, good, good safety tip. Um, hey, yeah. you, uh, you, you threw out that teaser before about moving bodies. Let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah, so you know, um, you know, without giving up too much of uh, the, the whole story in the book, but we, you know, all of a sudden, you know, um, I was buying some crack cocaine off of uh, Hogman. <laughs> And his source. And right after the deal, um, Hogman, you know, had his gun, his waistband, puts it on the table. And he's like, hey, um, you know, we, we ended up having a smoker guy um, and we buried him a few months ago. Uh, the property's being sold and we need to move him and, um, you know, need your help. Now, Hogman had just shattered his foot in five places, kicking the shit out of somebody, literally shattered his foot in five places. So he was like on a cane and a boot. So he wasn't able to really do it. He's like, I'll go, but you and Tracy, you got to go move this body. I'm like, all right, that's fine, man. You know, just let me know when. Now, Hogman was an interesting character. I mean, besides the blood fetish and all that went with that, um, he was as sharp as a fox, but also as dumb as a box of rocks. Like if, you know, give you an example. If I said to Hogman, hey, next month we're going to go to Wildwood. He'd be like, okay. All right, I got it. But if I said to him, hey, we're going to go to Wildwood in May, he'd be like, well, when's May? So, like, like that was kind of his intellect. Um, but I'll tell you what, um, you know, he planned and put this thing together, and he had every detail down, and he did not waver for one second from it. And so about two months went by, and um, and so the, the, this conversation about, you know, the body and ATF is all up in arms. You know, half the people are like, we can't move a body. The other half is, you know, we have to do it. And, and so most were like, okay, we're okay moving the body, but then we're going to have to shut the case down and, and dig it back up. And um, and so that, that, so ultimately what happens is we travel up to upstate New York up to the Catskills. And um, 
it's freezing cold, man. It's the, it's freaking February. And, um, you know, everything's rocks all the ground. I'm like, how the hell are we going to dig a grave? Like without a backhoe. And, um, and so we get there and Tracy lived up there and he had put rock salt down over the ground and let it sit and whatever. Anyways, if you guys ever need to bury somebody in the middle of winter, I can tell you the, the tips on how to make that hole work, but um, <laughs> it, it, no joke, man, you can do it. So we, we dug this grave, but the, so there was a, a large contingent felt that like, Hey, these guys have been tipped off. And we were, cause when I say in the middle of nowhere, it is in the middle of nowhere in the Catskills. And, um, you know, they're like, they're going to kill you up there. And th- that hole you're going to dig is going to be for yourself. And then the other half were like, oh, we got to find out, is there a body or not, you know, and so forth. So, you know, I, I wanted to go. Um, it was the one time they made me wear a transmitter um, and the stupid thing freaking malfunctioned in the middle of it. Um, and so we went up there and and, and ultimately dug, dug the grave. Um, these guys got high. We waited for it to get dark. We then take two trucks, head over. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, man, you know, one of the more intense you know, parts of the investigation was, and again, really on edge, um, Tracy. So Hogman had a gun in his waistband for the ride up from, from the city all the way up to the Catskills. Wasn't totally unusual. Wasn't totally usual either, but not unusual. When I got there, Tracy had a gun on him. That was really unusual because Tracy never really carried a gun with him. And he had it on him. He had him on the whole time. Um, and so then we're, we're laying this plan out and the, the deal was Hogman was going to drive my truck. Tracy and I were going to go in his truck. We're going to go to where the body was, pick the body up, bring it back and put it in the grave. We just dug. We throw it in the back of my truck and Hogman would just drive away and then we'd fall. Anyway, so we go out down this desolate road. There's the cover team's nowhere, nowhere near us because there's just nowhere they could be any lights. You'd see it from frigging a mile away. Cause there's just nobody up there. And um, so Tracy pulls over, jumps out of the truck and heads off into the woods. And uh, I, my knee, I, I'd suffered some damage to my knee. And, and, and um, so I wasn't able to really keep up, jump out of the truck. And the next thing he's gone in the woods and I'm like, Oh shit, this dude's got a gun. He's in the pitch black woods. I'm going to turn you know, around one of these trees. He's just going to smoke me. So I'm trying to go tree to tree. There was a moon, you know, that night. So I could, there was a little bit of light. Um, and so we're going and I'm calling out to him and he's yelling back and, and, you know, I've, uh, I'm looking, I've got my gun. I had a gun with me and I have my hand on my gun and, and going tree to tree. And I see a clearing and there's Tracy and there's this big tree down in front of him. And in behind that was a tarp, you know, wrapped around this, this body. And so, you know, he's like, Hey, come on, grab it. So, you know, we pick it up and we're holding it up like over our heads and, and, um, we're going to my hill and he's a little, how long has he been dead for the, the, the person? It was about six months, four to six months is, wow. is what they had said. So, it, it, you know, the thing, you know, like I grab it and you can feel like what feels like shoulders, you know, you feel like these bony shoulders. And as we're going up this incline, Tracy's, you know, a little bit shorter than I am, but when we're going up the incline, he's higher. So this friggin' smelly ass liquids leaking out of this oh. thing over me. I mean, smelled like shit. And, um, and, and, you know, it was a little lighter, uh, but we're going up and I'm like, God, this fucking reeks. We throw it in the truck. Anyways, get back to Tracy's, bury the thing down, put down some lime um, and then put the dirt over and then put some snow over that. Go into the house and um, phone rings like a minute later and it's Roblox uh, and he's calling Hogman, who they're half brothers. And he's like, hey, um, you tell these guys, nobody ever talks about this again. Not amongst you, not amongst anybody in the pagans. Nobody ever talks about it again. So now I know Roblox is in the conspiracy. I know sure as hell no Tracy and Hogman are. 
Um, we talked about a little bit. They talked about how they bound him up. They talked about they cut his hands off and fed him. There's a hog farm down the street. They fed the hands, you know, to help uh, uh, hurt the identity, uh, you know, trying to identify the body. They went into that stuff. But then after that night, they never really talked about it again. When we got back to the clubhouse later that night, Roadblock was there. And my, the president said something about my boots because I were covered in mud. And uh, and I tried to, you know, start the conversation. I said, well, you guys know where we were. We were out in Allison Roadblock. Looks, and he goes, what did you say? Where are we at? Like, and I caught myself and I was like, all right, well, clearly it's not going to be as easy to wrap these guys in this conspiracy is, is what I thought. Um, so anyway, so, you know, they, they didn't talk a lot about it. And, and, you know, we dealt with it when we got to the end of the investigation. Wow. Uh, so um, go, going back to the, the, the Wildwood um, war to the shore, I, I guess it was your first one where uh, your backup agent was with you and uh, she was hanging around with, with all the old ladies um, and then you got lured off and there was that sense of panic that, you know, why were these guys taking you out? What What's that like being – you know, undercover, and you're not just worried about you now, you're also worried about uh, your partner that's an undercover, but now you guys have been separated. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you, at the beginning of this thing, it was like, okay, you know, in in, in George and Ray, you guys know, like some of these investigations will have three, four male undercovers. Um, some have one, um, and, and, and some bring in females, some don't. Um, and there's pros and cons to all of it. You know, my thing was with, with multiple males, it's great, right? Cause you have males that can go to every event. And, Cause oftentimes like for, during prospect and things like that, females can't go to the events. Um, but the other side, it's really easy to get tripped up in your story when you have multiple people who, you know, they can start asking questions between them and what have you. So, um, you know, for me, it, it bringing another male just was too too much of a risk, especially where I was a new guy. I basically dropped out of the sky, and now all of a sudden, another new guy's coming in out of the sky. Um, but having a female, you know, allowed me at times, particularly you know, communicating with the the cover team and things like that, it made it much easier. They, they just they're not as closely scrutinized. They're not really scrutinized at all. Um, there were times that she could carry a gun when I couldn't. Um, and so on this particular night, uh, George, that you're referring to, um, so I had gotten kicked out of the Pagans um, about a month and a half before. And I got kicked out, not nothing because of what I did, but the national vice president who had vouched for me, he tried a coup, take over as national president. He got his ass handed to him um, and thrown out of the club. And so everybody he vouched for got thrown out of the club. So I was on, you know, and honestly, when it happened, uh, you know, I, I, I was done. I was like, all right, you know, this is meant to be, I'm out. And, uh, you know, they basically asked me, Hey, Hey, rest up for a couple of days. And, you know, let's see. And the pagans were like, Hey, we're going to get you back in. So, you know, just hang in there. Anyways, long story short is went to the, the mandatory. And so I wasn't a prospect. Um, and, and so I went over to the president's room and, and, um, you know, there, you know, there was some out of town pagans there. There was some Florida pagans who I'd never met. Um, and some people were hanging out inside the room or whatever. And so mostly the old ladies were inside the room. The guys were kind of out front in the courtyard. And then more and more pagans were showing up that I had never seen before. And they were coming up from the Carolinas and up from Florida. And, um, and they just made a big thing about old ladies causing problems. Um, and that, you know, basically, um, you know, unless they had a property patch on, they were fair game. And if there's any of them causing problems, they're going to get beaten, raped or worse. Um, so I'm outside. And next thing you know, PETA and his sergeant arms are like, hey, 
we want to talk to you, let's take a walk, which wasn't uncommon. You know, a lot of times when they were talking business, they, you know, you'd hit the, you know, the bricks and kind of walk a little bit away because they were always paranoid about mics and all that. So we're walking and, um, you know, we, we get a fair distance from the motel before it really dawns on me like, hey, I just left my partner back there with a whole lot of pagans that I don't even know. Not that you know, like I built a strong enough bond that I trust them anyways, but especially when you don't know them. And so I was like, I oh, no problem. I'll just call and just be like, hey, everything all right. So I call a cell and she's not answering. I call two, three times. She's not answering. Now I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck did I do? And so I'm, I'm like, hey, I, I got to go back. Now, the good news is I'm not a pagan, so I don't really have to listen. They know it like they can't order me not to do something or whatever. But they're also looking at me like, no, no, we're not done talking yet. And and I'm like, I got to go back. I'll, I'll, I'll connect with you a little bit. They're like, no, no, no. And honestly, I want to turn around and sprint because it was my fuck up. It wasn't her fuck up. It was my fuck up. I, you know, I should have never gotten that far away and allowed them to lure me away. And I wanted to sprint. So I didn't, I walked as fast as I could, but I felt like it was in quicksand getting back there. When I finally get back to the, uh, the room, the door, which was wide open when I left was now just slightly ajar. And I'm like, Holy shit. You know? And, and so I went and kicked the door and it, it was expecting to see the worst. And, um, you know, there's, there's like six old ladies sitting in there, four of them on one bed. And, um, you know, they're just bullshitting and whatever. And, and I, it, and you know, it's like you lose your kid in the mall and you find them. The first thing you do is yell at them. Um, you know, it, it was the same thing. It's like, I was mad at myself, but I wasn't going to yell at myself. So I figured, all right, I'll yell at her. And, um, and so I'm like, Hey, what the fuck is going on with your phone? Blah, blah, blah. Well, she had it on vibrate. She had to sit on the bed. So she, you know, she just didn't feel it. And, um, and, and again, this is all on me. It, it was nothing she did wrong. It was 1000% my fault, but I was pissed and I'm freaking, you know, yelling at her. And it, I mean, it looked good. Cause I looked like a biker, you know, it looked like it was a part of the role, but really I was like genuinely scared. And, uh, and you know, afterwards, you know, we, we talked about it. It's like, Hey, you know, this can't happen. And, and, you know, I can't allow myself to get lured away. You got to make sure you keep your phone on. And, you know, it was all good, but man, I'll tell you for that, what seemed like two hours, it was probably maybe 10 minutes. Uh, it was, one of the low points of the investigation for me. And I was, I was pretty pissed at myself for, for a while after that, because it was like, man, that could have ended so much worse. And it was just, it was just stupid on my part. Yeah. yeah that, that you got to be on for, uh, always ready for as the agent, but then you also have to be always on for, you know, yourself for your safety and, and, and the safety of somebody else. And, and that's, you did a great job in a book talking about uh the the stress and strain of 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 what that was like on you and and how that uh how that uh, uh but uh, again i was reading the story going my god what's going to happen and you know i i know how it turns out because you were my boss you know five years later so uh i know you didn't <laughs> die so but <laughs> But but it's a uh, it was it was a, it was a nail biter, man. There were there were a lot of parts of that book. I was I was turning the pages like I was reading a thriller. So so well done, well done. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks. I mean that means a lot coming from you guys because you guys know this stuff, like right? We you know there's a lot of folks, and, and I always said to my wife, I'm like I, I just don't know that there's a book here, and she's like, are you are you crazy? Like you live it, and we all live it, and we're all used to it, but the rest of the world doesn't know what this stuff is like and, yeah. and you need to share that story and, um, and tell it in a way that, that people can understand it and make it an easy read. So it's not like super complex, but that you understand what the, you know, what complexities that are there. Yeah. Hey, speak, speaking of complexities, you know, you've described these folks as uh, criminally insane and, and violent, but 
you've also befriended them. So what was that humanistic side? Could you identify with these killers at all? You know, people always ask, like, oh, did you ever like any of them? Um, I, I will say this. I disliked some less than others. Um, there's none that were, um, you know, particularly good people. Um, they, but there were some who would just, listen, some of them were in this for, you know, they just needed a belonging. They want to be part of a group. And then there was the hardcore criminals. And then there was just the psychopaths. And um, so you had that blend going. And there, there was some that, you know, I mean, Doc, you know, one time really looked out for me, you know, they have a thing called the witching hour when you're, you know, at a mandatory and you're a prospect and they basically hunt for you. It's like two o'clock in the morning, they hunt for you and they beat you with ax handles. And, and this guy hid me out uh, when they were hunting for me and, 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 uh, you know, I, I caught some ax handles on a different night, but I, not that night. Um, Hellboy was another one, you know, Hellboy, when he was strung out of meth, um, you know, the guy was extremely violent, an MMA fighter, a true bad. I mean, most of the pagans were scared to death of him. Um, and, and um, very, very unreliable. You just never knew what this guy was going to do. When he wasn't strung out, you know, he was like a regular dude. You know, I mean, he he was, you know, <laughs> rational, you know, other than the fact that, you know, he tear, tear somebody's head off in a heartbeat. But, like, rationally, you could talk to him or whatever. And, and I'll tell you, he and I had built a relationship and went – when the case came down, the, the, the final night, um, I did a, uh, a, a large meth deal with him. And it was it, it was decided it would be safer to take him off in a car stop after a, a meth deal than it would be to hit a house with him inside because he was just freaking insane. And um, and he he refused. When they when they got him and they said, hey, you know, slams a cop. He's like, no way. This is, he goes, there's a lot of people, a lot of pagans I would think are cop. There's no way slams a cop. And, and he wouldn't believe it, like all night. He wouldn't believe it, but he, th there was a night when he was strung out and he got sideways with a mother club member and um, you just don't do that. And he did. And, and the mother club member pulled me aside and he, he said, slam, um, I want you to go kill him. And I'm like, well, well, me and who else? You know, this guy's an MMA fighter. Like we got other guy. He's like, go to your truck and get your 44 and kill him. So now it's like, geez, you know, I, I can't do that. You know, and I'm walking out to my truck, to get my 44 and this Hellboy, And I'm like, Hey bro, listen, you got to go make it right with the mother club member. And he's like, he's like, fuck him, blah, blah, blah. He's still, you know, he's all, but because I had built this relationship with him, I'm like, listen, bro, don't do it for him. Do it for me. And, you know, do it for me because they want me to take you out. And if I don't take you out, they're going to take me out. So like the only way to make this right is for you to go back in there and, and apologize. And he's like, fuck them, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, bro, I'm asking you one bro to another. And uh, he's like, all right, I'm doing it for you slam. I'm not doing it for them. And he went in there and he apologized, made it right, and made the, there was no other way out of that situation. Uh, wow! And and so like some of the relationships you, you build are they're all part of the investigation, right? But the, the stronger the bonds you build with some of these guys, somewhere down the road that may come in handy. And at times, you know, when it's coming down, you know, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it, you're wondering like, oh, was this the worst of the worst? Uh, but there were some, you know, when it came down to recommended sentences and stuff. Um, there was one guy who was, you know, looking at 15 minimum mandatory and just didn't feel like, you know, he deserved it, the enhancement. So, you know, we were like, Hey, give him the five years. Um, and so, you know, we weren't, it wasn't like we were trying to put everyone, I mean, it was guys, I mean, Hogman was facing a hundred years and, huh. um, you know, because he got splatted on the road when it should have been me. Um, it was costing like a million dollars a month to keep shipping him around for, for a court. And they're like, Hey, let him plead to 
11 years and um, he, he's not going to live 11 days. So don't worry about it. And I was like, all right, fine. Let him plead to 11 years. Of course that fucker makes it 11 years. And, and I was at one point figuring he's going to outlive me, but uh, <laughs> he, he died a couple of years, a couple months after getting out of prison. But anyways, uh, when you, when you say you got splattered on the road, talk about that. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, Create, you know, people, you know, again, you know, people are like, oh, my God, are you afraid of the pagans? And, and you know, when you're in there, yeah, certainly, you know, because the further you get in, the longer you're in, the more charges you're building. You know, you're, you know, it, it, on day one, if I knock on the door and they say, hey, beat it. Um, OK, nobody's killing me. Right. I don't have anything. But the further you're in there and the more evidence you get and the only way to get rid of you is to get rid of you. And so. Um, you know, I, you know, you had that concern with the pagans, but honestly, I, I, I told my wife, I said, listen, it, it, the bike is the number one threat. You know, we ride 110 miles an hour, gear down three feet off of each other. And we ride two aside, two abreast. So like that's the, and, and listen, everyone thinks bikers can ride bikes that they, they, they all can't, you know, some of them are actually really <laughs> shitty bike riders. And so you, you learn to stay away from those guys, um, really quick, but you know, and then, then of course the Hell's Angels. Um, you know the rivalry there, and, um, and and I'll tell you a quick story on that. But the the bike we, we were on a big run, and we had um, it was a whole bunch of us, and we just gotten back to the chapter president's house, and he had sent me and in, in Hogman, who was the VP at the time, and I was the sergeant arms, out to pick something up. And so the the vice president has no status unless the president is dead or in jail, and, and the president wasn't, so he had no status. So I was the highest ranking. So I, highest ranking rides front left. And then it works its way back in rank. So I pull out front left. I'm the highest ranking, you know, pagan. And so we're going down the road. And he pulls out and he pulls around me to the, the into the other side of the, you know, over the yellow line. And um, it, it starts riding front left. Well, I'm like, hey, listen, I'm a make believe biker. I don't give a shit. You want to ride front left, ride front left. You know, it's no skin off my back. So we don't make it a quarter mile down the road. As we're turning a corner, um, a minivan splatters him all over the road. Wow. It yeah, it wasn't his fault. It was the minivan. Um, literally splatted him. He coded out. Um, they brought him back to life. He actually coded out a couple times. And um, and so, like, later on during the prosecution, he was a medical mess. And um, that's where that plea uh, part came from. But, you know, back up, I said I'd share another story on the Hells Angels. You know, that was the other concern. It's like the Hells Angels were – they were always going at it with the pagans. And so when I, 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 when I told you I got kicked out of the club through no fault of my own, you know, because the national vice president – I should have been on guard duty, but I got kicked out of the club. So I went back up to Boston and I kept in touch with these guys, you know, as, as the case agent others wanted me to. And in the, of course, the papers were saying, Hey, we're going to get you back um, into the club. Uh, well, the night I was supposed to be doing one of the nights I was supposed to be doing guard duty out in front of the clubhouse um, about 30 hell's angels in the support club members rolled up in the clubhouse. And there was only the national vice, uh, the national, uh, I'm sorry, the chapter president, inside and then the uh sergeant arms was outside and uh they rolled they rolled up and and uh they beat the shit out of him man beat shit on him with ball peen hammers he had to get med flighted out um that would have been me it should have been me I, I was the one who was supposed to be standing out there and, and you know because i got kicked out of the club it wasn't so you know people are like oh it's amazing the skill it's like listen a lot of this stuff is dumb luck you know it's do you have the luck on your side and how long is that luck gonna run yeah wow so so Ken, you have the uh, the stress and the trials of doing the undercover. You're you're battling with um, ATF um, management, both um, you know to keep it going to shut it down. Uh, it's gone from uh, 
the Boston office down in New York. Uh, DC is monitoring it. So you're, you're, you're fighting the, the pagans, you're fighting uh, somewhat ATF management. Then you wind up having a fight with the U S attorney's office in New York um, as, as the cases wound up, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, the case was prosecuted ultimately, I mean, in, in numerous different jurisdictions. Um, the two main ones were the Eastern and the Southern districts uh, of New York. Um, but it, it was also involved in Boston and Ohio and in Maryland. And uh, so there was uh, the U S attorney's office as a whole was fine. What happened is, um, there was a lead prosecutor from Southern District and a lead uh, prosecutor out of Eastern District, and they both were great. You know, when the case started, um, when the, as the case was ongoing, um, and after shortly after the case came down, the lead prosecutor in um, Southern District went out on maternity leave, and they replaced her with a white collar AUSA who had no experience in these types of investigations, and. Um, you know, we, we were briefing him early on and in, in, in telling him what was going on. He's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 am I correct in hearing that you witnessed crimes and didn't prevent them? And I'm like, yeah, every day um, or else this would have been a one day investigation. And wow. he's like, well, what authority did you have to do that? And uh, I'm like, what do you mean? What authority did I have to do? And he's like, well, what authority? And, and thank God, man, we had gotten a letter uh, authorizing me to take, you know, part in tier one and tier two activities, criminal activities from the director of ATF signed it and the U.S. attorney signed it, um, not, not an AUSA, the U.S. attorney. And um, so I had that letter and, and so we explained it to him. And um, and this this clown was like, well, they didn't have the authorization. I'm like, what are you talking about? How do they not have the, who else is it? The president is the president supposed to sign off on me, you know, doing these long-term undercover investigations. I mean, what are you talking about? So anyways, yeah. At one point this clown was talking about it, like having me plea to an information um, in, 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 yeah. For the crimes that I was a part of. Yeah. It was, it was like, I'm like, this is not real. Like there's no way this is happening. And, and, and I will say this, um, the U.S. attorney um, for the Southern District caught wind of it and immediately removed this guy. Um, and, and they brought in um, another prosecutor named Tim Seney, who was the best. Um, I asked him a straight out question on the reassignment of this, this other U.S. attorney because they lied to say that his, he had a trial get moved up. I mean, when have you ever heard of a trial get moved up? It doesn't make sense. Uh, so, and so I asked him, I said, Hey, what was the real reason? He told me the, re the real reason. And I was like, all right, man, you and I are going to get along fine because you're not lying. And, uh, Tim seen is a straight up great, great attorney. Um, you know, we had a ball working together. Um, he, he did a phenomenal job of prosecuting you know, his portion of this case. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I will say props to, um, ATF's division counsel. Uh, nice. particularly in New York, um, you know, he went to bat and he was like, it's not going to happen. Um, and here's why. And, and, and so ultimately it went away. It was, it was a bunch of nothing. Um, but you know, it's like, who needs the stress at that point in your life? Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you finally get out from under this case and now all of a sudden they're talking about indicting you. Yeah. Speaking of legal woes, uh, tell us about the time, uh, you got arrested. 
Yeah. That was a highlight for me. Uh, yeah. And, and it's funny because people, there's people who like, were like, oh, so that's smart. You, you know, you went and got yourself arrested. I'm like, all right, no, I didn't go get myself arrested. And it wasn't part of the plan. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, so it wasn't too long. Um, it, 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 the, the heat with the Hells Angels had really gotten turned up and there was a lot of back and forth with the Hells Angels. And, uh, so there was word had it that they were going to try to come at the clubhouse again. And so there was a bunch of out of town pagans, um, who came in and the area was really heated up. And honestly, we couldn't control it. Like there was no way I was going to be able to say what was going to happen or not happen. So, you know, it ended up reaching out to the cover team, just said, Hey, get some gang unit guys in here from the local department. You know, obviously not telling them there was none to cover in there, but just heat this area. Um, and so they did. And the gang units were all over the place. And, um, you know, eventually the pagans who were in town and they, they bought, you know, bombs with them. They were going to blow up, you know, some of the hell's angels locations. Like it was, it was not going to go well. Um, and so they basically, the pagans like, Hey, it's too much heat. We're not gonna be able to do this. Um, and so eventually it calmed down. Some of the, the out of town pagans had left. Some were still there, but some had left. And, um, and, and there was no, didn't, I didn't think there was any more gang unit cops around. I was hungry. want to get something to eat. Um, and I had a gun on me and I'm like, all right, I don't want to leave the gun in the clubhouse because God forbid the cops show up here and one of these clowns grab my gun. And, uh, I didn't want to walk down the street with it for fear that I get jacked up and have a gun on me. So I walked around in my truck and I, um, uh, opened the back door and I ha had a, a large pickup truck. So it was high and, uh, I slid into the back seat and, and I taking the gun out and, and um, slid it into the, uh, the map holder, you know, behind the seat. And, um, you know how you get that feeling like, oh, I just fucked up. Um, and so I slid in there, put a, a poncho or else. And I'm like, shit, I shut the door and I locked it. And, uh, unmarked cruiser comes whipping up. Yeah. The next thing you know, I'm on the ground proned out. Uh, <laughs> they're like, Hey, what's in, what'd you put in the truck? I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Now across the street is 15 pagans sitting there staring at me. Either I wanted to say something, which I wouldn't have, but I couldn't anyway. So I'm like, I don't want to talk about go fuck yourself, you know, playing my bike yourself. And um, so they're looking, looking in the window. Next thing you know, the cops, you know, he grabs the keys and he's like, I got, it, I got, it, you know, and so they find the gun. Um, mistake number one for me is, so I was, you know, I, my background was, I was a convicted felon, which that wasn't a mistake. My felony conviction was for kicking the shit out of a cop. That was a mistake. <laughs> so, so I, I wasn't given the best of treatment as I was locked up and processed. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I spent a couple of days in jail by the time and, you know, they couldn't, so the pagans got me an attorney right away. They had one on, on uh, retainer and, um, and so I had to stay in role. And then I'm thinking, holy shit, I hope all my backstop and stuff stands up because they're going to be getting discovery and all this yep. other stuff. And ultimately, the pagans bailed me out. Uh, ATF, you know, was back and forth of what the hell they were going to do. I don't know how <laughs> the pagans stepped up and bailed me out. So at least I got out after a couple of days. Oh, man. Wow. Hey, Ken, I, I have to ask you then, because we're, we're coming up on an hour here, is what is the draw? these outlaw motorcycle gags and i say that because i thought they were just going to dry up i didn't think people had the interest uh the passion particularly as you described it today what it takes to be an outlaw biker but there still seems to be a draw why is it? 
Listen, their their numbers are on the rise. Um, you know, I think after this case, the paying numbers were going down, but they've rebounded big time. And a lot of the other ones uh, have as well. And, and there's more chapters now than, than there were 10 years ago. So there is a draw. And I don't think there's a one size fits all. You know, I've had people say, hey, it's a lot of military people uh, or ex-military. Uh, no, I, I don't think that's true. I think there's some like any other, you know, there's all sorts of different professions. There were cops who became bikers. Like, like there's there's um, there's no single thing. I think for some folks, it's an identity, you know, um, and, for, and listen, I, I will tell you this and I, and I will never understand it. We would go into bars and it were like we were rock stars. The whole place would hush. Guys would come up and kiss our ass. Girls would be all over you. And listen, these were not good looking men that I was hanging out with. All right. Some of the ugliest humans I've ever seen. And in, in these, in these guys had all sorts of women who were interested in them. And, and, and so um, I think that's part of it is it just like individually, they're all a bunch of losers, but when you put them together, they had some notoriety in, in that appeal to them. Wow. Ken, uh, long, long, long and short of it um, was the case worth it um for you professionally uh and personally so i i think i think professionally it's worth it not in the sense that it helped my career because it sure as hell didn't yeah um but it it you know we put a lot of bad people in jail and we got to mother club members and put them in jail and you don't do that if you don't have an undercover that goes in and is able to infiltrate um and, and so I think in that sense, it was good. And there were a lot of spinoff. We talked about the prosecutions, the direct ones that when I came out, there were many of them that came later um, that were spinoffs of this. And there's still Intel that's being used to this day. So that was all very beneficial. I spent a lot of time talking to law enforcement groups about this because I believe others need to do it. I, I'm not doing it, but there's <laughs> others that need to do it. And, and people always ask me, they're like, hey, are you glad you did it? Yeah, I am. You know, I'm glad I did it from a professional standpoint. I want to know a, you know, it, the, the modern era is more and more difficult to do these types of things. And I want to see, you know, hey, could it be done? And then, you know, B, we, you know, we had a big impact. Um, but the, the second part to it is, would you do it again? And the answer is hell no. Um, because it does take a toll on you. It does take a toll on your family. And it, you know, is that worth anything? You know, the answer to that is no. And, and, you know, I was lucky. I, I have a terrific family, super supportive wife who um, held it all together. Um, but, you know, she didn't share a lot of things with me when I was going, when it was happening. Cause she's like, Hey, you had enough. I wasn't going to pile onto that. Uh, but now knowing what I know, it's like, I would never do it again because it's not fair. It's not fair to the rest of them. They didn't sign up to do it. And, and they all went through hardships. And, uh, and then the reason why I wrote this book, I mean, I had no intention of writing a book. Um, these guys were like, Hey, you have to memorialize the story because someday you're going to be gone. And then the story's gone with you and, and wow. people need to know what this is about. So they are the reason why, you know, writing with evil is in existence today, man. Wow. So, uh, where can anybody who hasn't already bought the book and you need to buy the book and read it, um, where can they get a hold of it? Where's the best way to get a hold of it? 
It, it's everywhere. I mean, it's Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, it's in all you know, the local bookstores and, you know, big fan of the local bookstores, you know, and supporting those. Cause you know, as you know, there's getting to be fewer and fewer of those, yep. um, but it, it's everywhere. And there's the audio version. There's the Kindle version. I, I didn't think anybody owned a Kindle anymore, but apparently they do <laughs> a lot of those sell. Um, and in, in, in the, in the, uh, hard so it's, it's yeah, it's pretty easy to come across it. So so did there it is. Did, Look at did, it. did you do the audio part for the audio book? You know, you're not the first person to ask that question. No, I I, I picked the audio. They gave oh. me five audios to pick from, nice. and I picked the guy who did. They uh, but yeah, so I, I got to to pick the voice, but it is wow, not my. That's pretty oh, cool. Very cool. Hey. That's it's awesome. nine and a half hours. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't stay there focused for nine and a half hours to read that story. Again, uh, I, I I want to thank you for coming on, but I do want to give a shout out for two people, uh, Pete Gagliardi. Um, obviously, uh, there was only room for three of us on this, but he definitely wanted to speak to you. And also, Carlos Canino. He happened to give me a call earlier today, and I told him you were coming on. So he's uh, excited to hear this. <laughs> Well, that's great. I appreciate, I appreciate all the support and I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a yeah. lot of fun. Well, uh, Ken, it was an, an absolute pleasure. Uh, I hope this thing uh, sells a million copies and uh, they make a movie out of it because uh, it, it would be worthy of, uh, of that great, great job. And it's great catching up with you, man. Uh, all the best moving forward. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And George, I'm down your way uh, and I, I'm going to be giving you a shout. Hey, yeah, please do, man. Please do. Same number. Yeah, you I'm down that way a, a lot. So I will do that. And there, there has been some Hollywood interest, so you never know. This could show up on the screen. And Ken, of course, cool. Ken, of course, if you want to come back to the Jersey Shore, let me know. <laughs> well, let, let me, if you've got a good spot in the off season, I, I try not to no, make it there for bike week anymore. Not on the off season. That's the problem. On the and the peak season, that's where we have to have you down. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah well, you're right. You're well, right. thank you yeah. so much. We greatly appreciate your presence here. All right, guys. Take care and be safe. Ken, be good, buddy. Take care. All right. All righty. Bye. See ya.